Hello everyone and welcome to the third episode of the Observability Talks stream and podcast. So, uh, it's been a month since we've been around. You've missed this lovely face and voice. I'm sorry if you haven't, you're going to have to suffer with it for how long it takes to get through all of the agenda today. And as usual, we are following the usual practice of having a talk or discussion. In this case, it'll be a talk from Matt Shellett from Critosphere, and he's going to be talking on M3DB and Prometheus. And then we're going to be covering some bits of news that have popped up in the last month. So, for those of you who are tuned in, uh, please feel free to ask questions. At the end of Matt's talk, we will uh, be raising them. So, if you haven't been around for the podcast before, this is a podcast about open observability. That means open source observability. That means we're going to be covering in later sessions everything from DevOps, observability, and the open source that glues it all together. So let's begin. I am Mike Ellsmore, and I am your host. And now I'm going to be dragging in Matt so that he can say hello. Hello, Matt. How are you doing? Good. How are you, Mike? I am buzzed off coffee, and that is a fantastic <laughs> feeling. Um, so you work at Chronosphere. Who are yeah. Chronosphere? Uh, so Chronosphere is a hosted metrics and monitoring platform. Uh, we kind of focus on uh, large-scale, high-throughput use cases and trying to do that all in a cost-efficient way. And we do so by building on top of M3. Uh, which is this open source project that we're uh, very deeply involved in and help maintain along with Uber. Okay, now here is the important question. How in the heck did you get into the DB side of uh, of these, these observability world, <laughs> which is full of tools? How did you end up in the data layer part? Uh, let's see, I guess kind of by happenstance. So uh, I, before working at Chronosphere, I also worked at Uber as a, an SRE on their metrics platform um, and, uh, you know, kind of saw what it took to scale a metrics platform at Uber's levels of growth over many years. Uh, and a big way that we did that was by uh, building, was by creating M3 and releasing it to the open source community. So. Uh, take it as a judge of my character in one way or another that for, I've voluntarily chosen to work on metrics platforms for the past uh, five plus or you know possibly five or so years of my life. Um, but uh, that's how it goes. Okay, considering you have a huge smile on your face still, it, it's it's going good for you then. Uh, it's definitely been a lot of fun. I've seen a lot of different perspectives on uh, you know how people are putting metrics to use and uh, kind of what it takes to get the most value out of them. Um, so it's definitely been a fun experience and uh, yeah, some uh, you know exciting learnings I'm looking forward to sharing with uh, the stream today. Fantastic, that's great to hear. So um, if you're ready, would you like to start? Yes, let's do it. Okay, I'm gonna drag in your slides and remove myself, have fun. All right. All right, um, let me get this up. Thanks everyone for joining. Uh, thank you, Mike, for having me again. Um, as Mike kind of said, hello, or my name is Matt Schallert for all of our viewers and listeners. Um, and I'm excited to be talking to you about uh, Prometheus, scaling Prometheus, and how this open source project that we've mentioned, M3, fits into that picture. Um, so we already kind of covered this, but in terms of how I ended up here, I now work on infrastructure at Chronosphere. Like I said, kind of building this uh, large scale metrics platform. Um, and previously before that, I was uh, working on the in-house metrics platform at Uber. Um, but I'll kind of gloss over this since we just covered it. So let's jump right into the exciting stuff. Let's talk about uh, something we might all be familiar with given the topic of today's stream, Prometheus. Um, so Prometheus is what many would consider to kind of be the de facto open source metric solution for getting your metrics stack up and running. Um, and it's earned this title by being an all-in-one solution. So that, uh, you know, it kind of encompasses a lot of different parts of, uh, of a metrics platform. So Prometheus is both an exposition format for emitting your metrics from an application uh, as well as a solution for gathering those metrics, querying them, 
and, uh, and also has an alerting components that you can kind of uh, you know constantly alert on them and take action. Um, it's really easy to get started with Prometheus, and a large part of that is because it's all encapsulated in a single instance. Uh, so that is, by default, all of your data is gathered from and stored on a single instance. Um, and a lot of you who maybe haven't operated or you know worked with Prometheus directly might kind of still have seen its reach in the ecosystem when you you know a lot of uh, open source projects that you might run if you hit the their slash metrics page and you kind of see a bunch of stats coming out. Uh, a lot of times that is in the Prometheus format. So uh, in one way or another, you may have come across it before. But this fact that uh, you know Prometheus is a single instance. Uh, it's kind of its strong point because it makes it really easy to get started. Um, and it's really helpful from an operational per perspective. But like everything it does come with some trade-offs. Uh, so to give you an idea of some of the challenges associated with having a single instance running, um, imagine you're running your infrastructure and you have a few services. And you decide that you want to use a single Prometheus instance to store metrics for all of them. Um, you know, this is totally reasonable. This is pretty much how everyone gets started. Uh, and, you know, if you can run this way forever, then, uh, you know, that's more convenient. But over time, though, maybe, you know, one of your services grows. Uh, this might be because it's getting more traffic, or maybe you're emitting more metrics, you're running more copies of it, what have you. Um, but either way, at some point, maybe it's beginning to overwhelm what a single Prometheus instance can uh, gather and store and query. Um, Prometheus offers some knobs here to help you store less data. So uh, there are two rule or two things that mainly come to mind are relabel and drop rules. So this allows you to uh, transform certain metrics on the ingest path uh, or just not store certain metrics at all. And this does buy you some headroom, but you still uh, in storage and uh, querying, but you still have some computational overhead either way in actually uh, you know, scraping the data and gathering it. So you've reached this point where you're starting to overwhelm uh, a single instance with all of your services. What do you do now? So one pretty reasonable option is just to split things up and add a second Prometheus instance and to send all the metrics from uh, that larger service that was overwhelming it to a dedicated Prometheus instance. Uh, so now you've solved this problem, you've bought some headroom, but you've introduced an additional challenge, which is that uh, you now have to manage which Prometheus instances contain data for, uh, for which services. Um, and there's no you know, one way to split this up or one right way or something. There's a lot of ways that you can kind of uh, shard Prometheus. So, Maybe you'll have uh, you know, dedicated Prometheus instances for certain services. Uh, maybe you'll divide them up by team or by some other dimension. Um, but either way, in addition, uh, you know, in kind of introducing this uh, scale factor, you've also added some operational overhead uh, in terms of managing these instances and choosing which targets get scraped by which. Additionally, you now also have multiple instances to query from. So before, when we were talking about having one Prometheus instance, you could pretty much get a global view of your metrics um, by querying that one instance. But now if you want to say query metrics across uh, different services that are stored on different Prometheus instances, you have to query multiple. And even more importantly, what happens when uh, a single service outgrow or when a service outgrows what any single Prometheus instance can handle? Do you uh, make changes to your service to emit less data? How do you decide what you want to throw away? Again, you know, kind of one right answer there. Um, and then finally, uh, what there's the question of what you do if a Prometheus instance fails. So if you only had one Prometheus instance scraping your service, you're losing data while that instance is down. Um, one pretty reasonable option is to just have more than one Prometheus instance scrape each target for high availability. Uh, this helps with data redundancy, but now you kind of have to figure out how you'll query both of those instances, like we also just talked about. Uh, but in this case, you know, you have to figure out if one was down and missing data, how do you kind of stitch together the data? And one thing to note though is that it's totally possible that this isn't a problem for you. You know, maybe you're scraping 
some low priority target and you don't really care if you have gaps in your data because it's operationally not worth it to have this redundancy. Um, but what I've personally seen is that as Prometheus usage has grown and uh, people are using metrics for, uh, or people are relying on metrics more in general, um, they're capturing data that they might really care about having available all the time. So maybe you're capturing business metrics or you're capturing metrics that feed into auto scaling systems. Um, these are things that you don't really want gaps in. So again, it's important to remember that in all this, you know, different users have different priorities. So it really depends on your context, but um, there are a growing number of use cases where, uh, you know, not having high or not having your metrics always available could be problematic. So to recap, if you're starting out with Prometheus and expect to see your usage scale over time, there are these two main questions you have to deal with of how to handle data growth and how to handle instance failures. As I mentioned earlier though, the Prometheus developers chose as a design constraint to focus on single instance storage. And this isn't a bad thing. It's made operating Prometheus much easier and it allows them to make the best decisions for their use case. And obviously it's gotten the project extremely far. Um, the project explicitly decided that they would support long-term storage by providing an API between Prometheus and remote systems. And these are known as the remote read and remote write APIs. The remote write API, uh, which we'll talk about first, allows Prometheus to act as a bridge between targets exposing metrics and external systems. So third-party systems can implement this HTTP API, and then you just configure Prometheus to send samples to them. And in this case, Prometheus has to only store a minimal amount of data itself, mostly just enough to like buffer onto the downstream. Um, and then it will handle uh, sending all incoming writes to whatever your uh, long-term storage is. Um, so I'm getting an error on my slides here. Uh, sorry, I'm not sure why that didn't load. I'm just gonna reload this and go back to here. Okay, and we're back. Uh, so Prometheus uh, has this remote storage API to send uh, data to long-term storage. And uh, you know, there are quite a few remote storage systems. Some offer uh, read and write storage. Some offer just read, just write. Uh, you can see actually Julius Volz's talk from the Open Observability Conference for what some of these are. Uh, but obviously the one that is near and dear to my heart uh, that we're here to talk about today is M3. Uh, so M3 is an open source metrics platform that has all the dependencies you need to run a metric system. Uh, this includes a distributed time series database, an index, a query engine, and an aggregation tier. Uh, M3 implements the Prometheus remote read and remote write interfaces along with some other protocols you might be familiar with, uh, such as Graphite and StatsD. The two primary goals of M3 that, uh, or two of the primary goals of M3 that make it well-suited to be a remote storage solution are that uh, it's highly available and it's horizontally scalable. So let's take a look at that first part for a second, uh, the high availability aspect. So, High availability in the M3 ecosystem is handled by M3DB, which is the core distributed time series database and index that kind of sits at the foundation of the M3, uh, of the M3 stack. M3DB takes care of sharding and replicating your data across different failure domains. Um, so this can be zones in a cloud region, this can be racks in a data center, or this could be cloud regions across uh, you know, a continent or multiple continents. Um, in this case uh, here, for example, we have a nine node M3DB cluster with uh, spread across three zones in the cloud region, region with three nodes in each zone. So M3's cluster membership algorithms take into account uh, the failure domains of each node and distribute shards accordingly. Uh, in this case, with a cluster with a replication factor of three, each node, your sorry, each zone would have a full copy of the data, and each of the uh, nodes in that each node in each zone would own roughly one third of the data set. Within M3, there's also a component called the coordinator. Um, this is kind of what we refer to as a fat client that handles uh, reads and writes. 
So what this means is that as the coordinator, as incoming writes come to the coordinator, it will take care of sending those writes to all three replicas. And the coordinator itself will decide uh, which ones succeeded, which ones didn't, what counts and doesn't count about uh, as quorum, handle retries, et cetera. This is as opposed to having like the database, for example, uh, handle replicating each write to its peers. So if you're familiar with um, a system such as Cassandra, there's this concept of hinted handoff where a database will get a write. Uh, and if it has to forward it along to a peer, um, it will. Uh, and or, yeah, if it has to forward it along to a peer, it will. Um, in M3DB or in the M3 ecosystem, it's all that logic is just encapsulated in, uh, the, co in the coordinator. Um, this puts less load on the database nodes, and it also means that we can scale the coordinators statelessly. Um, so, you know, depending on uh, what sort of data you're sending, you can actually have cases where, like, ingest might become more computationally expensive, um, and uh, you don't have to worry about, you know, scaling your database just because uh, you need more capacity in your ingestion path. Um, and then from, uh, let's say you have a failure in a zone. So for example, uh, in, this, uh, in this example we were looking at where you have three zones, let's say you actually lost an entire zone. Um, M3DB has quorum reads and writes. So in a cluster with a replication factor of three, you would only need two replicas available to serve uh, reads and writes without any errors. Um, in this case, we see that we've lost an entire zone and it doesn't matter whether we lost the entire zone or just some nodes in it. Uh, clients writing to the system won't see any read or write errors and their data will remain fully consistent. If you lose nodes across more than one failure domain, admittedly, then it's harder to uphold these guarantees depending on uh, the shard or depending on the ownership of the shards of the nodes that failed. Um, but actually, as long as you still have one replica available, you can serve potentially inconsistent reads. Um, but again, in this uh, kind of like common or more common failure scenario of losing uh, nodes across one failure domain, there's no interruption to uh, the end user. Um, and uh, I see a question here actually on Twitch. How does communication between the nodes work when they have a failure in a multi-DC setup? And uh, how much does the latency affect the repair? Um, so uh, we'll get actually to, in a bit to the concept of uh, peer streaming and I'll kind of revisit this. And we'll talk about uh, how some of the repair and um, uh, redistribution of data works. Uh, but this is a good question. So let's think back uh, let's talk about horizontal scale now. You know, we've kind of covered how M3 achieves uh, high availability. And as I said, this other goal is to be horizontally scalable. So thinking back to that situation uh, we mentioned earlier where you're emitting metrics from many services, uh, and let's say you have, you know, a three node M3DB cluster uh, or like one node in each zone, one of your services gets too large. Uh, begins overwhelming your cluster, and you pretty much just have to add more M3DB instances uh, to uh, to kind of like handle that uh, scale out and uh, distribute your data evenly. Um, that's kind of a high level overview. And if we look at how that works on a per node basis, uh, it's all achieved by this notion of, uh, or by what we call peer streaming. So let's say you started with a three node M3DB cluster um, and each node owned uh, 30 shards. Um, you begin to, like, you started to reach capacity on that, whether, uh, you know, depending on your ingest, or depending on your ingest patterns, maybe uh, you wanted more disk capacity and you had fixed disk sizes or uh, you needed more memory, but either way you need to distribute the load uh, across, uh, across these nodes. So uh, in this case, the cluster membership algorithms, when uh, you add these new nodes, would decide what the new uh, ends, like optimal shard distribution would be, and uh, publish that kind of desired state into the cluster. And then the nodes themselves will work to converge on that desired state. So in this case, uh, we want each, uh, if we're adding um, six nodes total to what was previously a three node cluster, 
then we want each of the new nodes to have uh, one third of, of their uh, replicas data. And they will begin gathering the, or begin streaming that data from the nodes that owned it uh, over an RPC mechanism. Once those new nodes uh, have determined that they have streamed all the data and they have a fully up-to-date copy of what the previous nodes had, they'll mark themselves as uh, successfully having received copies of those shards and the new nodes will uh, stay available for that shard. And then once, once all the uh, shards are available, the old node, uh, the old nodes will drop the data, and uh, you know, you'll have an evenly distributed set of uh, of uh, of the replica. Sorry, an evenly distributed set of the shards across all these nine nodes, um, and uh, you know, have more capacity. And so, this is where, when we kind of think back to that, uh, how does communication work between nodes when they have a failure in a multi DC setup, and how much does latency affect the repair? Um, so in, a, in the base case, when an M3DB node fails, you actually don't need to uh, like receive or to get copies of the writes that it had while it was down. Um, this is where we kind of rely on those quorum semantics. Uh, and we typically run with uh, you know, odd replication factors at least of at least three. So uh, you know, as compared to a setup where we have, say, two replicas and it might be more important, or we only have two copies of the data and it might be more important to catch up on what you missed. Uh, in this case, we actually just assume that, you know, two copies were up at, uh, or at least receiving rights at any given time, whether or not they were cor um, fully quorum. Um, and uh, you don't need all nodes to say, own a complete copy of the data set and do any sort of ongoing repair operations. Um, but in terms of, say, you were just running these across multiple DCs, uh, if you really wanted to distribute the data across DCs, then when you add these new nodes uh, here, for example, and they begin peer streaming, you could just put um, these new nodes you're adding in different data centers uh, and mark them as being in that data center, and they'll get the shards distributed according to, uh, uh, to those failure domains. So we talked a lot about uh, the kind of right path and getting data into your system, but obviously uh, getting data into your remote storage is pretty useless if you can't also get data out. So the other side of this Prometheus remote storage ecosystem is the remote read API. And this is actually a bit trickier than remote write. Like, you know, remote write, you're pretty much getting some samples, storing them on disk somehow. Uh, remote read, you actually have to be able to answer more complex queries. So in the remote read path, you'll first send a query to Prometheus in PromQL, which is its native language. And Prometheus will take care of uh, parsing this query and rather than executing it locally, uh, will instead send some metadata to your remote storage API. Uh, among this, there are a few fields in this metadata request, but the most important part is the set of label matchers. So Prometheus might send you something like, uh, get me all time series where tag A equals value A and tag B matches some regex. And then your storage system will return all the time series that match and Prometheus's query engine uh, will compile that response and send it back uh, and send back the response to that PromQL query to something like uh, Grafana for visualization or maybe your alerting engine. So M3 also, uh, M3 also implements uh, this remote read API. So um, we have a uh, this other component called M3 query, which you can actually just run in the same uh, uh, binary as the coordinator process that we mentioned earlier. Um, and we actually have two different approaches to how you can get, uh, or a few different approaches to how you get query, can get queries uh, through mQuery and into the M3 ecosystem. So uh, you can either, into the M3 system. So you can either uh, use the remote read API, in which case uh, we will, you know, match those, uh, return the time series that match those label matchers uh, that we see here send them back to uh, Prometheus instance to compile the response. Um, what we've also done is you can also uh, have, we have 
imported the same PromQL implementation as uh, upstream Prometheus. So you can also just send a PromQL query directly to M3 query and we'll run it through the Prometheus query engine uh, just to kind of like save a hop there and have a bit tighter integration with uh, our storage. Um, and then finally, we also have our own implementation of uh, PromQL. However, it optimizes for performance and uh, a not as broad set of uh, use cases. So it's not guaranteed to be up to spec uh, since we've kind of had to make our own trade-offs there. Um, but one thing that, uh, we've, that we've heard from users that they enjoy is kind of this ability to make their own compatibility trade-offs. So depending on their query cases, maybe uh, they don't need like 100% PromQL compliance uh, and can uh, kind of get like a little bit more performance out of it for better integration with M3, or maybe they do want that full PromQL experience um, and uh, ensure that they have or full compatibility. Um, this is actually something that the Prometheus community has been looking at a lot recently. So there was a report, uh, I believe from PromLabs on um, PromQL compatibility across uh, different uh, projects that we're going to attempt to uh, submit our results for. Um, but again, since you know we understand that both the Prometheus community and a lot of end users do want uh, that ability to have that full native implementation, so we offer that as well. Um, so in terms, you know, we've talked a lot about M3 and its uh, roles, remote read and remote write API, but obviously there are a lot of other component, or there are a lot of other options in the ecosystem. Um, so just to briefly talk about how M3 kind of compares to those, and we can dive more into this in the discussion a bit if we want. So the main difference is that uh, from what I've seen versus a lot of other projects is that M3 really is uh, like the full stack solution to, or full stack storage uh, and you know query layer for, uh, for storing and retrieving your metrics and for interacting with PROM. Uh, what I mean by that is that, you know, when we talked earlier about M3, you know, redistributing shards and uh, kind of like doing all these cluster, all this cluster membership, is that you know each M3DB instance has the copy of the data on its disk and handles um, you know the, the quorum semantics kind of transparently from the users, or kind of transparently to users. So uh, compared to something where you're using like external storage, whether it be maybe like a more generic uh, database that's not necessarily built for time series storage or something like a uh, hosted database service from your cloud provider. Um, compared to these where you're kind of offloading a lot, uh, some of those storage needs to an external system, M3 really has, uh, you know, really owns the data. Pretty much all you need is like some disk, CPU, memory, and a network, and you can have uh, an M3 stack. Um, Similarly, because we have all this cop or have all the data on our own disk and have been able to kind of like optimize for that case, uh, the fact that we also have this embedded index uh, it allows for very fast queries or allows for very fast index queries, uh, especially since it's built on top of uh, a uh, technology called like FSTs that allow for really fast regex lookups. So you know if you're doing uh, large regexes over a large data set, each node can kind of like, you know, map almost in MapReduce style, gather the data on disk that it owns uh, and return those results much more quickly than say like iterating over all the series that match some tag and figuring out which match your actual query. Um, so, you know, these are some of the benefits. Admittedly, there are operational trade-offs as well. And I hope that like, you know, as uh, you kind of gather from a lot of things we've talked about today, uh, there is no one right answer for everyone for any of these problems. Uh, there are some operational trade-offs you have to make uh, if you, you know, if you want to kind of own all this data yourself. Uh, compared to, and just looking at like one other example, say compared to a uh, solution where you're using like cloud storage, uh, like like an object storage, for example, to store whether like just the actual data blocks or metadata. Comparing a system like that with M3. So, uh, you know, with M3DB, again, you kind of like fan out these queries to each of the nodes. They run the data or they run uh, those queries through data that, that they already own on disk and can kind of like quickly return a response. Uh, whereas with something, if you are, say, offloading that storage to uh, like a remote object store, you have to fetch those blocks on demand. Uh, you kind of have to like iterate over the 
um, metadata that matches your query and there's just a little bit more back and forth and uh, you know there are non-trivial storage costs for like storing data in an object store um, but also for retrieving the data and kind of like all the network costs that come along with that um, we've talked a lot about you know once you have M3 up and running, and I'll kind of just briefly talk about uh, how you can deploy it specifically. Like, you know, we've seen a lot of our, a lot of folks in the community have uh, interest with, or interest in and success with running M3 on top of uh, Kubernetes. So uh, what we did was create like an operator, uh, an open source operator for Kubernetes that allows you to kind of uh, put, ask these higher, define these higher level cluster attributes that you want, such as you want a nine node cluster across zones A, B, and C uh, with 1,024 shards and a terabyte of disk each. And one thing that's really nice is that since Kubernetes also has the concept of like failure domains and expressing these requirements and letting you know kind of like where pods are placed and also you telling it where pods are placed, um, then you can, with the operator, you can pretty much uh, like say that you want this higher level cluster state It'll ask Kubernetes to uh, schedule these instances according to uh, you know, these specific requirements. And then you can do things like maybe you want to weight your shards based on memory, or you want to you know, ensure that you have certain disk types attached. Uh, obviously, Kubernetes introduces another layer of complexity uh, that you, know, you kind of have to, or that it, you're probably not going to get as much success with this setup if you don't kind of know some of the pitfalls there. Um, but if you are if you are more familiar or if you are familiar with that, uh, you can kind of like merge these two ideas that M3 has of like shard distribution and failure domains uh, with the similar controls that Kubernetes gives you for that. So that's about all I have. Um, I hope that this has been a helpful overview for you all, and uh, excited to have a little bit of discussion about some of the uh, topics we talked about. If you're interested in learning more, check out some of the M3DB open source resources we have. So m3db.io is uh, our project homepage. Uh, we have a community Slack linked to from there uh, where we're pretty active. Um, our GitHub organization is just m3db and our mono repo is at m3. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, I work at this company Chronosphere that's built on top of m3. And uh, if, you are, if you have any questions about uh, Chronosphere or interested in learning more, our website is simply chronosphere.io. Um, so now we will kick it over to uh, Q&A. Um, let's see. There we go. So I'll drag myself back in to help with these Q and A's. Hey, Mike. We have we have some from the crowd. So yay, crowds! Um, great. So I will talk about. Uh, let me take these in order from those we haven't covered. So, uh, how do you balance cap when recovering from node failure? Um, so this is kind of what I was talking about, or, or I somewhat touched on this earlier when I said that you know we don't necessarily uh, say try to. We, we don't expect each node at any given time to always have a full copy of the data set. So uh, if there was a node failure, rather than trying to make sure that like each node has as best view of the data set as it can, uh, you know, our assumption is that at any given time, uh, there were two up for any given or for any shard. And uh, we kind of just rely on that for quorum semantics. Um, M3 actually has uh, tunable consistency guarantees so if you want, you could even say like all three nodes must, or you know, all replicas must uh, require or must acknowledge all shards uh, if you are running. Uh, and then when nodes bootstrap, which is kind of when they come back from a restart, you can also add some more consistency guarantees from there in terms of like which parts of the data they own. Uh, we actually have a doc on our website, or sorry, a section on our docs, which is docs.m3db.io. Uh, called tuning consistency and availability guarantees, I believe. Um, so you're, if you're interested in uh, more of those, uh, or if you're interested in more of the details there, I'd encourage you to check out that section. Um, this next question is, are you running the newly released PromQL correctness tests on M3DB? Any data you can share? Uh, we plan to. We, uh, I believe we've actually talked with some members of, Prome of the Prometheus community about uh, getting that up and running. Um, but we plan to run that ourselves. We just uh, haven't done so yet. So I think those came out like a few weeks ago. Um, as I said, you know, we built this uh, our implementation with uh, a, with these trade-offs in mind. So um, 
I don't necessarily think it's at least right now one of our goals to have 100% compatibility because in some cases we do make performance trade-offs. Um, but we're excited to see this effort in the community around uh, kind of like getting better visibility into these different implementations. And so we're going to work on getting our results up for that as well. Um, this next question is, uh, which parts of Cassandra inspire the design of M3? Uh, so yeah, I'm not sure if the this uh, is kind of with the specific context in mind that uh, as Uber has talked about in a bunch of their in a bunch of their talks, so M3DB was actually built to uh, replace Cassandra. Um, there uh, are actually a uh, some operational perspectives of Cassandra that uh, the kind of opposite of them influenced M3. So for example, our cluster membership is all stored in etcd, and it's kind of like this external cluster membership. Um, we have had pain, some pains before with running, uh, you know, large scale go uh, gossip systems, especially across multiple data centers, or even uh, if you have like zones with unreliable links with or within single regions and such. Um, and uh, yeah, also just the fact that, you know, Cassandra is more of a general purpose key value store. So if you're storing um, like timestamp value pairs as you are with, with time series, uh, then you are like pretty much storing whatever, like, you know, 64 bits for like the timestamp, 64 bits for the value or something. Um, with M3B, it uses a uh, compression algorithm called M3TSZ, which is based off of uh, Facebook's gorilla paper, uh, Facebook's gorilla compression. Um, and so you get like 11x compression or, or, or better, uh, depending on your uh, kind of data patterns compared to just storing like raw uh, key value or timestamp value pairs. Um, I've seen a lot of discussion on the aggregator. Can you explain the current uh, and plans for aggregation? So right now, the aggregator is arguably one of the uh, more operationally complex parts of the M3 stack. So uh, I didn't go into this too much, but our aggregator is uh, this open source aggregation tier that's fault tolerant and allows you to do uh, kind of like complex aggregations on incoming writes to save on uh, data costs. So if you're familiar with Prometheus recording rules, uh, you can pretty much think of the aggregator as like a massively scalable uh, fault tolerant recording rule tier. Um, and this fault tolerance is achieved by having like two copies. So there's two replicas running uh, at any given time. They use leader election uh, and uh, only one of them is like actually writing out data at any given time. But anyway, because of uh, you know, some of these design constraints and uh, just some of the complexity around aggregation in general, like I said, it is uh, pretty complex to operate. There's a lot of, you have to uh, kind of keep in account or take into account like timing of things like restarting instances based on your aggregation intervals. Um, so we are exploring things such as maybe having aggregators like stream data to each other in the event of failures rather than uh, you know expecting each one to always have a copy of the data. Um, right now though, for our users that are running the aggregator in production, it is working well for them and their use cases. Um, and uh, since it's not as or not as commonly used as some of our other components in M3, uh, at least right now, we're working on like simplifying M3DB operations and uh, kind of some improvements there. And we're going to, uh, I, you know, we're kind of going to revisit uh, the plan or take a look, take another look at the plans for the aggregator based on kind of like community feedback and usage of it. Uh, where is the M open source M3 project going in terms of software foundations and governance? Um, so right now the governance committee is partly made up of Uber employees and partly made up of Chronosphere employees. Uh, and then other contributions come from the community and go through Uber's CLA process. Um, right now there are no plans to contribute M3 to any software foundation and you know, kind of just going to see uh, what the community wants and where interest lies there. Um, but there hasn't been, you know, any, uh, we haven't, that hasn't come up too much yet. And uh, yeah, so at least right now, no plans. Um, how does M3 handle backfilling? Uh, so 
this is actually something that uh, we, this is another area where we kind of uh, worked on this later on in the project's life based on community feedback. So uh, M3's original use case was designed for, you know, just incoming time series writes where uh, you're pretty much always collecting like current telemetry. Um, and there ha hadn't been as many requests for uh, backfilling data or really just wasn't the primary use case. Uh, over time, as M3's adoption has grown, more, more folks are coming with these use cases where they want to be able to uh, write time series data into the past. Uh, this is initially something that wasn't part of our, or uh, was difficult to do with our design because uh, in M3DB, all blocks uh, other than the current block are typically immutable. Um, so we actually, uh, in the past, or in the past year, introduced uh, cold writes, which uh, you know we kind of revisited some parts of the storage engine and made it actually possible to uh, write data into previously closed blocks. So uh, right now, to backfill data, you just pretty much write it back into the past. And uh, if you have cold writes enabled in the namespace that you're writing to, uh, then you can actually backfill some of that data. Uh, so this is kind of another example where um, you know we initially built the uh, built M3 with certain design constraints, got a bunch or got some community feedback on features that folks wanted, uh, and we're able to incorporate that into the process and build that out for uh, for folks, which is really exciting. Wow, we went through those. Cool. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I, time, I, I have another one um, that All right. I was just thinking about. So M3 has been designed for the as the long-term storage option for um, Prometheus-based metric data. Now, my brain was just wrapping around the whole rebalancing process of the nodes, which um, I love the fact that it's, uh, the sharding methodology means that it's not trying to run active communication on nodes that haven't rebalanced. It's great. But that means the more nodes you add, you're going to end up with larger, larger um, distributed shards across all of them, just because the very nature of adding more nodes to a cluster. What happens when we enter the realms of thousands and thousands of data points and we need to do sampling? Are we, is this going to be a point where we're going to require the individual node to do a subsample before having the coordinator do a superset sample? Or is it, are we going to be requesting the entire data set period and then have the coordinator just essentially destroyed through memory requirements to actually create samples from there? I know we're not yeah. quite there yet because we're not producing enough data, but um yeah you know you would think that there uh, there are actually active use cases in production where uh you know where this has come up so uh the way that we handle this is kind of through um aggregation and uh pretty much handling sampling on the right path um this is something we've started to look at and is potentially on our roadmap for handling um wider read side aggregations uh kind of on demand and we've started to do some work there um, but at least so far, what we the way we handle this is uh, you have namespaces with different retention and resolution configurations. So, for example, uh, in a single M3DB cluster, maybe you're storing uh, 30 days worth of data at 10 seconds, and then you're storing five years worth of data at 5, 10, 30-minute resolution. Uh, this is achieved typically, or the most reliable way to achieve this uh, with you know full data fidelity is through the aggregation tier. So you pretty much just write uh, you know certain data or certain sam samples. Sorry, incoming writes come in, you aggregate them, and you send them to uh, different namespaces depending on the retention and resolution configuration. Um, and one thing that's kind of nice about this model is whether you have multiple namespaces in a cluster or multiple namespaces across across different clusters. One thing you could uh, you can do is say in your long-term cluster, you know, you're not there's less data you're storing, it's less uh, kind of demanding on the right path. So maybe you actually run that cluster on say uh, spinning disk disks and kind of like save some disk costs there, um, and you kind of keep your uh, like active or hot data on uh, you know more expensive disks. And so it's kind of nice to be able to make that trade-off of uh, you know disk requirements and memory requirements and such uh, based on the pattern of the data that you're storing. 
Um, but to answer your question, you know, we typically handle uh, these sampling on the right path at, uh, at aggregation time. I am going to be very, very curious when people start building long-term predictive models on this data. It's going to be very interesting how people start actually building those data sets. They are out there. <laughs> Pardon me? Yeah, uh, you know, there are use cases that are using uh, M3 for uh, pretty, you know, historical, um, like data analytics use cases like this already. Um, so, uh, you know, one thing that we're excited about is we've uh, started to kind of get more folks in the community talking about their experience running M3 outside of some of the uh, large or outside of some of the uh, common use cases that you've seen. So hopefully over time, we'll, uh, you know, you'll be able to hear more of those stories as well. Um, and actually, we have a uh, uh, open source M3 meetup um, that uh, you can find on our website as well. Uh, where we are running these, uh, running similar to what we're doing here every so often, uh, and having more folks from the community uh, talk about their experiences. Okay, that is amazing. I'm just going to quickly. So I, it, this is going to be from the M3DB website, correct? Uh, yeah. Let me see if I can find it. I am M3. just grabbing it now so I can uh, share screen and. Uh, and uh, here, I'll tell you what. I will send you. Uh, that the, sounds fascinating and something that we should definitely share for people to get involved with. I just sent uh, you over a private chat, our uh, virtual meetup group. Okay, here we go. Let's open that and share screen. So here we go for those people who have just... It, oh, wow. It's an actual... Jeez. Okay, so a proper community-orientated meetup for discussion on these edge and long-term use cases for M3. Uh, yeah, these are, so this was one specific instance of it recently, but uh, that group is where we'll be posting, um, you know, our future meetups as well. Um, so hopefully you can hear about some of those uh, other use cases we've discussed. So everybody who's tuning in now or listening to this much, uh, much, 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 much later in the future, uh, Google Meetup N3 Community and it will hopefully bring this up so you can find it yourselves. Um, I will remember to add this to the description of the YouTube video afterwards so somebody can find it as well. But I, that Thank is you. absolutely bloody brilliant. Um, uh, we do actually have one last, another comment. Um, here we go. So that's that. Uh, would, do you want to take this one? Or is yes. Yeah, so uh, yeah, pretty much uh, the aggregator, well, it is dependent on how you configure this. So if you want to just do kind of like basic uh, sampling and rollups on uh, the right path with the coordinator, you can. Um, but for those, uh, you know, kind of large scale fault tolerant use cases, that's where the aggregator comes in. Okay. And for those of you who can't see this, the question read, is M3 taking care of down sampling and rollups? As a follow up question to my awkward question for Matt earlier. Um, Okay. Um, is there anything else you would like to share, sir? Uh, no, I think you know I covered some of those links uh, previously. Would encourage folks to check them out. Uh, if anyone has any questions, would love to chat further in our community Slack as well. Uh, feel free to send over the link to that, and I will drop that in the uh, video description as well. Definitely. Uh, fantastic. Right. Uh, thank you very much, Matt. Uh, it has been an absolute pleasure. And I'm going to drop you out of this so that I can start with the breaking news. Great. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. This has been a blast. Absolutely. Fantastic, Matt. Right. So, as always, the breaking news. <laughs> I discovered how to use a mic properly for these effects. It's fascinating. Right. So, um, there has been some stuff this uh, week, and I... And uh, do, 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 share my screen. There we go. But there has only been two big pieces of information that I have come across. If anybody in the chat has uh, any other big news in the open source observability and DevOps space, please feel free to share. But the biggest ones that I have seen is the release of the 7.9 set of uh, the Elastic, uh, the ELK Elastic stack setup. And this is uh, increasing a lot of the capabilities in Elastic Cloud, but it's also putting a lot more uh, work into 
uh, Elastic as a whole. Um, and I'm very curious about how the upgrade path uh, is going to be with everything just due to the amount of the amount of components that have been upgraded at once in this release. I'm curious about the upgrade path for it. Um, I personally haven't tried yet, and I'm not going to lie, I'm a little bit scared of doing it. So there we go. Big release, and that was uh, last week on the 19th. And there is also some big pieces of news from uh, the vendor space as well. So, SumoLogic is expanding their observability platform. Um, as one of the bigger people inside of the observability space, um, this is quite big news because they've uh, focused primarily on the enterprise side of things. With uh, an increase in their SaaS offering, that means hopefully um, a little bit more of a push for the smaller people. And in my eyes, They've already put it here. More work within the open telemetry. That's fantastic because the more organizations that get involved with the open telemetry space, the more feasible and easy it will be for end users to implement and people to just pick the right piece of software to do their work as an operator. So I think that is fantastic. And on top of that, which in my mind, if open source projects always need a little bit more help, they're also looking to go and get their IPO. $100 million. You know what? I think the scene in uh, The Dark Knight um, where he slides down a pile of cash is exactly how I imagine that to be, just that large sum of money. But this means they're going to have a lot of money, which means, in my opinion, and my hope, a little bit of that means they're going to be able to put full engineering cycles into the open source side of life which I think is brilliant because as Sumo Logic and companies like Splunk, who are these big incumbents who got the, who've been working in the enterprise and the large uh, factor space get involved in it, the more level the playing field is going to be with uh, processes and plans like OpenTelemetry to build better software. So that is all the breaking news we have because surprisingly, I'm really bad at finding news. Um, I, I, I could do some help. If anybody on the internet sees interesting things over the course of the month, feel free to tweet it at me, which is at UKMadLs, or send it through to um, any of the details on the Open Observability website where you can post when it happens and how it happens. So uh, that is today's Open Observability Talks episode. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it's thank you very much to Matt for sharing, um, well, <laughs> a long talk with a lot of information and an even longer amount of questions. Um, I'm sorry uh, that we uh, got away so many, but I'm really glad he answered all of them like an absolute pro. So thank you very much, Matt. Um, so that's us. Uh, this is uh, the openobservability.io website will contain all the future and previous episodes and any upcoming stuff we do. If you've missed out and you want to be able to get involved in later episodes, we will be on every Thursday. The uh, time will depend on who we are having speak, obviously. And it's at twitch.tv slash openobservability. If you want to follow us along in general on Twitter, we are twitter.com slash open observe and um, you can just get all the other details on the website and if you have an interesting topic you would like to uh, share with us on the screen is the google form to drop a cfp so that we can host you and show off your knowledge and information to the world uh, it will also be in the description below so please feel free to click that and share your knowledge so I've been Mike Ellsmore. Thank you very much for coming along for this little ride and I will see you next month. Goodbye. <laughs>